that Matthew passage. But the Apostle Peter is, is case in point of somebody who has an idea of the way God should probably operate, but God's operating differently. We think we know how to do better, how to live better, how to defeat sin on our own, what God should do if God wanted to take over the planet, if he wanted to make everything right. We've got a great plan for God, just like Peter had a plan for Jesus. But he says, you don't have in your mind the things of God, but the things of men. And that's our problem. We are loaded with ideas, man-centered ideas, ideas of our culture, ideas of the best of our education. And yet God comes along and has a radically different way of approaching things. So we enter into a story like that where God is doing a crazy idea to fix things. Asking ourselves a question, what about you? In ways that you wish God would give you the capacity to become a person who looks a little bit more like Jesus and less like your bad self as we want to grow and conform into his image? How can, how can that happen where it seems like I fail so much, so often? We get in that rut of not even believing that change could happen. Could God have a radically different approach to how he brings change into your life than maybe what you're thinking? Pray with me, please, as we get ready to dive in here. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word tonight and for the story that we've just read, for the characters in the Bible going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and and David and Solomon and everybody in between and the 12 disciples. And uh, Lord, it's just a motley group of people. And you are using them to redeem the world. And we're thankful to be a part of that redemption tonight. We lift up our tired, ragged souls to you during this Lenten season. And we ask God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us know how to walk with you more closely? And could you use Exodus 2 to bring us there in some way? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 2, birth of Moses. Let's do a little historical background. I like doing historical background. Uh, this is all taking place uh, during a season, and it was a long, long time ago. Anybody know about when Moses was born? Round figures? No? Not really? Okay, the, the, I think 1500s is about when Moses was born. 1500 BC, not 1500 like uh, 500 years ago, but uh, 3,500 years ago. So it's very old at this point. There was a huge famine in the land of Palestine back in uh, 1847. That was when Jacob and his 12 sons were nomadic peoples living in what we now call Israel, uh, the land of Canaan. And because of that famine, if you remember the story, Joseph, one of the, one of the sons of Jacob, who, they had, who his brothers had uh, on a nice prank, they sold him uh, as a slave to some slave owners. He ended up in the house of Potiphar and eventually into the into the hallowed halls of the Pharaoh in Egypt and was actually the salvation of that family of Jacob when they came and were able to beat the famine by living in Egypt. There were 70 of them who got to Egypt back in the 1800s BC. Over the next 300 years, that 70 ballooned to 600,000 men, which means probably over a million of them over the course of 300 years major population growth. So uh, they were fruitful and multiplied, just like the Bible had told them. And that leads us to uh, uh, about uh, 1547 BC, uh, when, uh, when this story is, is taking place. A little bit about the Egyptian empire at this time. Uh, 
they were intensely, deeply into human trafficking, um, into slavery, uh, hard labor for slaves, so unfair working conditions. So you can read all about this in Exodus chapter 1. It was a very hard culture to be in. In fact, they had even gone to the practice of infanticide where they were killing off children, male Hebrew children, as soon as they're born. And then they also, in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, there's a brand of genocide where they were actually killing, killing older boys and, as well. So imagine living in a culture like that where you, you are growing up and you are oppressed at that kind of level, like we're killing your children and we're forcing you to work extra hard to the point where you destroy yourself for, for bad wages and you have no recourse what to do. It's, it's like being a Republican in California. There's just like nothing you can do. You know? this, how, this monolithic thing is happening. Or, or if you lived in Venezuela these days and I just want to have a nice life and get a nice job, but the government sy- system is just so broken and awful. And the Egyptian empire at this time is the leading empire in the world. So it's not like anybody's going to come running over, the, running over the borders and bring restoration. It's really a time of incredible hopelessness. And in many ways, culturally, so I say, we, we look at that and go, wow, that was awful. But this planet is the dominion of the evil one, says the scriptures. He is the prince and the power of the air. And Satan has been given reign Jesus is going to come and establish his reign eternally, eventually. But in the meantime, we live in enemy territory and we have a culture that's really hard to live in. And in our culture, we are, in many ways, enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. The Apostle Paul talks about that. We, we wish that we didn't sin, but we still do. We're under the fall and God uh, will ultimately redeem us and there will be sin no more. But while there is... You know, in the book of Romans, Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, the very thing I want to do, I don't. The very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. What is wrong with me? And I think we all feel that, right? Don't we just like write in a journal, what is wrong with me? Why? I have an image in my head. I read the Bible of who I should be, but I can't get there from here. It feels like it. It's because it comes down. It's oppressive. We can be slaves to sin. We live in a culture that devalues life. It devalues the life of the unborn, that's for sure. It uh, often devalues life on racial or economic uh, in those categories. And even the, the old, the aged, can be devalued by our culture. And we're all suffering under the law. The Bible says that, that God has come, and in the Old Testament especially, and then Jesus repeated it in the New Testament, there are laws of God that tell us how we should live and we fail. So it's hard not to just go through life saying, we're, we're kind of not good here, we're kind of, kind of failing is there hope in this? Is there some way up and out of the culture that we live in? And then in our Lent season, again, do we feel that same way? Is there, is there a way of escape from the bad me that I have been all my life, really? Is there a higher capacity for me to be uh, filled with the Spirit and to walk in holiness? How's life vis-a-vis this law? This law has been given, and I keep failing at it, and I need confession and forgiveness of my sin all the time, but is there a way I can live better? So the nation of Israel is wrestling with all of these things too. So back to the story. Uh, again, 1526 B.C., this is about 450 years after Abraham, so many centuries after Abraham, and another 500 years before King David. So Moses is right in here. 1526, let's take a look at it again. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. 
Okay, Jeopardy for, for 50. Name Moses' parents' names. I didn't know either this week. I thought, wow, I don't really know their names. Well, it's Amram, Amram and Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed had a little family going, and uh, Moses was the thirdborn. Jeopardy for 70 points. How many of you know the names of his older siblings? Come on, John, you know that, don't you? John's over there with his Bible open. One of them sings a song in Exodus chapter 15. The song of, no, no, Miriam was his older sister, and his older brother was his sidekick in ministry for years. Aaron, that's right. So Aaron, and so, so Moses is the thirdborn son, which is usually pretty inconsequential historically. Uh, we don't really know his Hebrew name, actually, because the Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses. You always wonder if maybe he was named Moses by his mom, and his mom went up and said, his name is Moses. Okay, I'll call him Moses, but we don't know for sure. We just know that the Pharaoh's daughter did call him Moses. Back to the story. When Jochebed saw that he was a fine child, and she hid him for three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she took, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. By the way, the word basket there is the same word in the Old Testament as ark. So it made him a little, little ark, like a little Noah's ark to save him, put him in the ark. Uh, Jochebed put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Can you imagine? A seven-year-old kid, and that's our new baby, and mom's sticking him in a little boat and just and she probably doesn't, rather than go hide like she probably should, she's running down the river looking at, look, where's it going to go? Who's going to get him? She's only seven, trying to figure it out. And she is the hero of the story, by the way, little Miriam. So again, back to verse 5. Now the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young woman walked beside the river, I like this about her. I don't know who she is, but she's kind of an extraordinary moment of compassion and says, she saw the basket, that's good, she actually noticed, among the reeds and sent her servant woman and then she took it. So she was proactive about what, what's going on here and wanted to, wanted to help out. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. I love this because this is, this is proof in the Bible that a baby crying in public can be a good thing, <laughs> can be a most wonderful thing. I mean, if, because he was crying, it says she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children. She, knew, she realized that. How might she have realized that? Well, the Hebrews circumcised their kids. There might have been an obvious difference, like, wow, this is a Hebrew child. So then his sister, little Miriam, who's followed now, and now she's down there with the Pharaoh's court, says to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse a child for you? That's brilliant. Seven-year-old brilliance. <coughs> I think I could find a woman who would like to be responsible for continuing to raise this child. She's thinking. I love that. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mom. And can you imagine the mom? She, she wants you to, to do this. How, how perfectly could this be working out? I just let my child go. And now the Pharaoh's daughter is calling me to take the child back in my arms again and nurse the child. It's just fantastic. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. Roger, <laughs> sure, I'll do that. 
and, and I will give you your wages. So not, now she gets to be paid to be mom. That's just a double whammy of goodness there. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So best baby cry ever, and the joy of the mom, and uh, little Miriam is our hero. Then verse 10, it takes the expected, though still kind of sorrowful turn, sorrowful turn. When the child grew older, Jochebed brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, because that was the deal, and he became her son, and she, the Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water, which is what Moses means, I drew him out of the water. At least that's what the biblical text says. Some historians say that the term Moses like, um, like the name of the Egyptian kings, Ramses. Have you heard that name before? Ra Moses, son of Ra, that Moses could mean simply son of. And so she might have named him son of whoever the father was at that time. Moses became a child in a new family, basically adopted into, into a family. And uh, God is up to something. So it's a sad day, obviously, for, for Jochebed. Can you imagine nursing your own child and then having to give your child to the, the leaders of ISIS or give your child over to Nazi Gestapo officers. That's Egypt to the Hebrews. This is the, this is the government that is oppressing us and killing us and wiping out our babies, and I'm giving my child to you, daughter of Pharaoh. Awesome. That... I mean, just, just ah, that, that she was able to do it, but she had no choice. Um, and then, uh, again, the name of Moses is little drawn out. That's Moses. He's drawn out, drawn out of the water as a preview, by the way, because Moses is going to be the one who draws the nation of Israel out of the waters of the Red Sea. And then ultimately, Christ is going to be the one who draws us out of the waters of baptism all through the scriptures, there's that link between baptism and the Red Sea, and then this links the Red Sea all the way back to Moses' infancy, where he too was drawn out of the water and saved by an unlikely group of people. So back to our situation. We live in this culture that's really difficult for us to, to be holy people in, and during the season of Lent, we, we, we want to find a way to escape. Um, can we live better? Is there any victory over sin? Here's where I want to, want, to, want to turn with this as we talk about it. God's plan to save Israel. Okay, let's back up again. God creates Adam and Eve. Uh, Noah and the flood wipes out the human race. They start again. It's just as bad as before. And uh, it says in, uh, back in Genesis 6, God was grieved that he made man because every thought of their heart was had evil intention all the time. I mean, man, this is bad news. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, from you I'm going to bless all nations. You are, from your seed, it's going to be like the sands of the seashore. There are going to be so many descendants. And through you and through the nation I'm going to build through you, I'm going to bless the world again, this bad, broken world. So we have Abraham, an old man and an old woman. God says, Out from your seed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless the world. Yeah, right. You know, it was a, we're, we're both... We both get the senior discount at Denny's, and you're saying that we're going we're, we're gonna to bless the world. They have one child of their own who becomes Isaac, who then has 
Jacob and Esau, who are both pieces of work, Jacob especially. The word Jacob actually means beguiler or heel grabber. This bad kid who's really funky all through his life, he's an emotional basket case, a psychologist dream. He ends up having 12 sons from four moms, you know, as dysfunctional a family as you can possibly imagine. But out of this family, then they get thrown into slavery in Egypt. They thought they were going for the redemption of food so that they could keep living, but they found that they would be enslaved, but they're fruitful and they multiply in that enslavement. This is an amazing story of redemption, but now here's what we find them. We find Jesus' promised people through Abraham are now trapped in in, uh, Egypt. What would you do if you were God? What would you do if you were Trump? Would you, would you military do something military and take over? We can't let this happen to those people. We need to go in there and liberate them. Liberation forces. We need to mobilize warfare. Is that how God's going to do it? Or do we need to mobilize policy? We need to raise up some good politicians in Egypt to change things. Maybe they can become better people. Maybe the result should just be fire and brimstone, like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what happened to them. How about the same thing happening in Egypt? Let's have God's judgment just rain down on these people because of how bad the culture had become. Instead, God infiltrates this evil empire in the smallest, weakest possible way you can imagine. With little drawn out, little Moses. God's got a plan for Moses. From the very beginning, he's protecting his birth. (coughs) Why? Like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in in Christ Jesus for for works which he has prepared for us in advance to do. God has a plan for Moses to be the deliverer of his people. He's got this, but he's he's going about it all wrong. (laughs) It's not powerful. It's as small as can be. But this little baby, third-born baby, who's going to grow up not to be the coolest dude of all. I mean, he's not particularly confident man, Moses. Not particularly obedient Uh, kind of a whiner at times with God. Uh, He was a stutterer. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a struggle for him. He had an anger problem. He he murdered people and he hit rocks with sticks and uh, had the tendency to lose his his patience. He he really grew up as a half-breed because he was technically physically Jewish, but he grew up completely Egyptian from the time he was, before he was one year old. So he grew up in that Egyptian culture. In fact, when he left and he went out to, to Midia and, and ended up meeting his family, all the people in town thought he was an Egyptian. He just looked and acted and talked like, had an Egyptian accent. So he's kind of a half-breed, uh, a career washout. I mean, when he turned 40, he ended up just kind of going into sheep farming. Again, not that there's anything wrong with sheep farming, but he found himself kind of unemployed and out of town and did what he could and <clears throat> basically became a, a manual labor. Sheep herders were not exactly at the top of the food chain back in those days. <clears throat> Even socially, he married a woman from Midian, but only had two kids. And when you only have two kids, that's kind of like only two kids. You know, isn't God blessing you? So he had his little family and uh, God's going, again, going back to the, the grand macro scheme, God is overseeing the birth of this guy who's going to go into Egypt and then he's going to murder somebody and then he's going to go to the city, to Midian. He was 40 years until he had his, 
until he committed his murder and he fled to, to Midian and another 40 years after that. So he's an 80-year-old shepherd. You might look and go, God kind of whiffed on this one. It's not really, doesn't seem like a great guy. But he's been God's guy. He and his brother are going to change the cosmos. Not just the world, not just Israel. He, they changed your life because of what they did, who they were. So this is God's idea. My idea is different, but this is God's idea, and God superintends this plan from the beginning. I believe that God even created the context, created the problems, allowed those problems, those awful laws, and all of that oppression to, to cause the need for the little ark and the bulrushes to begin with, so that the, the baby needed to find his way into Pharaoh's world. Remember that happened to Joseph, too. When Joseph was sold into slavery, Joseph found himself in the middle of Egypt. What am I doing here? You're part of God's saving plan. Don't push. God, God had a plan for you to be thrown into that cistern by your brothers and then ultimately sold to slave traders. That's Paul, part of God's plan. Does God really work like that? Does God work in all the funky brokenness of our world? And as Christians, do we ever look at our Facebook feed and everybody's mad at politics and everything? Do we ever stand up and go, God has totally got this. I don't know how bad it's going to get, but God has, during the days of the Roman Empire, during the days of the Egyptian Empire, that's when God has done some of his finest work. But he always does it subterraneally by some small little seed of something, like an infant born in a Bethlehem manger or a little kid in a little ark on the Nile. And he's going to fulfill his plan in, in incredibly humble ways. It's, it's just amazing to watch how God works, I think. So uh, he, God, I believe, lets the context happen, allows the situation where there's a need, uh, and then this inexplicable kindness of the Pharaoh's daughter in a land where they're killing off babies, and she goes, oh, I want to keep this one. Like, how's that going to happen? But it did on that day. It's an amazing thing. And now, because of that, through the word of God, which says that we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about God's call on Moses and the burning bush. Great story. But through the word of God in Moses' mouth and miraculous signs, Moses, this funky guy, is going to go just with his brother and a stick, and he's going to go into Egypt and change the world. Through the power of the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through weak vessels, and deliverance is going to come to Israel. Impossible deliverance through incredible weakness. And so fast forward to the story of Jesus. Are you doing this in your mind already? I mean, what is Jesus? The context of Jesus' birth is this Roman Empire and this language that everybody knows throughout the Roman Empire because it's a, a, a traveling business language of Koine Greek, so there's this international communication. And at the right time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born of a virgin, the whole Bethlehem story, and they had to go to Egypt too. Remember that? They had to flee and go to Egypt. So their whole life was surrounded by these weird circumstances around the birth, just like Moses. But the, the ark for Jesus was these wise men who came from the east, and they came, and they were the ones through whom they got the alert to get out of town because Herod's going to be killing babies, just like they were killing babies with Moses. And now Jesus is a refugee. Jesus spends significant time outside of his hometown before he finally gets back. But then through this simple man, it says in Isaiah 53, that there's nothing about Jesus that we would look at him and go, wow, except that he was the word made flesh. So he had the word of God and he did incredible miracles. And through 
through this simple man, no political forces, no money, just truth and the power of the Holy Spirit, he brings incredible redemption impossibly to a world through incredible weakness. So let's pull this all the way into your garage, your home. On your micro scale, what's wrong with your life? What do you wish was different? Do you have relational shrapnel in your life? Things have gone bad, things have exploded. People you're mad at, people who have treated you bad. Maybe career situations that, gosh, I was going in a good direction, but then this thing exploded and now I fall here. Are, are things not going the way you like politically? Are things not going the way you like socially? Our lives will never be Eden until Jesus comes back. They're a mess. They're messy. There's nothing perfect about them. I'm looking at you younger guys. Everything's probably pretty close to perfect for you. you know, I go to school. I play a few video games. I show up at the, at the table and food is put out in front of me. It's a nice life. It gets complicated. I'm just saying. And we all know that, right? And there are things about our lives we go, God, how did you allow this to happen? Somebody's sick. Somebody's sick early. Somebody dies. Somebody gets in an accident. Someone's paralyzed. And we go, God, how do you let these terrible contexts happen? Whatever your terrible context is, God knows it. God's sovereign over it. And God has a plan in the middle of it. But God, I wish my circumstances were different. Yeah, Moses' family too. Yeah, Joseph and Mary too. Yeah, the whole human race. Yeah. Why is this a surprise to us? Yeah, but God, I deserve better. No, you don't. But actually, what you don't know is that even if you think you do deserve better, you have better because you're focusing on how broken everything is. And these are the exact times when God sticks a little baby in the, in the bulrush and changes the world. God's ready to do something in the midst of your broken world in the same way and can. And I believe, I believe will. I mean, I don't promise this. I'm not like a, a Joel Osteen guy who's saying that God's got an incredible plan for your life and it's all going to work out. It's all going to be great. Well, your circumstances are all going to change. No, your circumstances get incredibly worse. Our country could go down the toilet, but God's got this. God might be doing it for the sake of his new Moses moment or his new Jesus moment or his new whoever moment in your life. It's going to change. It's going to bring big things. Through the word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can right now come into your life just like Moses brought that into Israel and Jesus brought that to our world. God can bring this into all the circumstances in your life and impossibly, impossibly, through incredible weakness, make radical changes. My wife and I, we, I love her dearly. We had, a, we had a conversation this morning. A confrontational conversation. We've, we've been married for 29 years and we're still trying to figure this thing out. And we're trying to get along. And we, we butted heads on this one issue. It wasn't a huge thing. You, but you can pray for us, but uh, it wasn't. we're here tonight and we're smiling. It was a... But it's, it's in, those, in those times of, of brokenness. I even said this today. Hey, we've, we've been together all this time. Is my personality really going to start changing now? I, I mean, are, could we really possibly even change now? And maybe during Lent you say the same things. Some of you are more seasoned saints than others. Some of you are on like your 50th, your 60th Lent. 
you're going, I've done this every year for a long time, and I'm pretty much the same. I'm really not changing that much. Can God really come into my life and do a thing? We go, yeah. At Lent, we say, I, I, I'm going to put this list down of things. I'm going to do much better this year, and with, with strength and willpower, I'm going to do better. And we always collapse in a heap when we try to do that. But maybe, maybe God is just saying, by my word and by the power of the Spirit, in the most simple little ways. It might just be me opening up the text. It might just me be having a conversation with a friend. In the quietness of prayer in my closet, God, could you come in and make those changes that I've always wanted to see, that you talk about in the scriptures? I, I want them so much. I keep trying to usher them in myself by my best efforts, and I just collapse. Maybe God in the weakness, maybe in the Moses-like, Jesus-like, maybe I can be a little drawn out, and you can draw me out of the death of my own baptism, the fact that I gave my life over to you and I'm dead to self, out of that nothingness, could you meet me and do a thing that only you can do? Because I, God, I don't know what you're doing. Things seem broken around me, but you know what you're doing. And to latch on to that, like little Miriam running down the river, just going, I want to see I want to see, this looks, all, this looks like the worst day of our lives. We're giving away our baby. But I want to watch and see if maybe God's up to something. Maybe there's a chance I can walk up and say something that might bring salvation to the world. Wow. Could we be like that? Just last word before we go to the table. Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, say that mountain move. God has always said it's in just the small faithful thing that the big things happen. So it's in that little ark in the Nile and it's in that little manger in Bethlehem that the world turns and maybe in our own lives we're just looking in the wrong place. Maybe we keep looking at grandiose commitments of the will. This is my, my best life now, I got this book, it's just full of all these chapters of ways that I could live my life better. And, and God is just saying, why don't you just rest, have faith in me, and just meet me at the simple places where I've called you to meet me. In my word, on your knees, at the communion table, and let's just see what I can do, because you have no idea. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him, says in Corinthians. God's God's got this. So as we head through our Lenten series, I hope that God moves mountains in your life. I hope God does sweeping change. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm, boy, I sure hope God changes you all. I'm not saying that. But we all want God to do good things. And God can and will. And he's about them. We just need to run along the river and watch what he's doing. We're going to receive an offering tonight. I uh, would encourage you, uh, even as we're receiving the offering, maybe mentally, I just want to ask you this question. Are you willing to give yourself over to the simpleness, the simplicity of the Lenten season where God could, in fact, do marvelous things in your life through the small and the simple following of him? And uh, also, if you would be generous towards the mission of the church here, we would appreciate that too. And we will sing and prepare ourselves for communion. Uh, the song that we're going to sing actually uh, is not on the screen tonight. It's out of your hymn book. And we're going to ask you to pull that hymn book out of the rack.
song is called The Last and Did My Savior Bleed, and it's 437. 